Well, good day again. Welcome to the Five Day Reading Plan podcast. My name is Lance Ward, and we'll be looking this day on what we read this week in the Old and New Testaments and the Psalms. Don't forget you can download a copy of this reading plan in the description of this podcast if you haven't already done so, or you can also find it at fivedaybiblereading.com. Well, in week 32, we read the prophet Hosea. We also read 2 Chronicles 26 through 27, Psalms 58 and 61, and in Matthew we read chapters 16 through 20. One critique of the so-called Old Testament God is that he always seems so angry. We talked about this last week. If we only read bits and pieces, the God of the Old Testament times can indeed seem like an out-of-control, angry man who shows little love and just a tiny bit of grace. We might imagine that if we lived in back in such times, our walks with God would be on eggshells rather than in peace. This is one significant and major reason why I recommend reading through the Bible often. It provides us context, and context gives us understanding so that we don't mislabel God. And as we are reading through Kings and Chronicles, we are seeing a huge problem addressed in Hosea. God's people are committing spiritual adultery against the one who has done nothing but rescue them and love them. Their problem is not an angry, inconsistent God, in other words. Their problem is themselves. God is not the bad guy. They are. And so God puts them in his shoes through the prophet Hosea, who is called to marry a promiscuous woman, then father children through her, though it will be unlikely that she will ever be faithful to him. I noticed, by the way, the terms for promiscuity and adultery saturate this book. I marked and counted at least 24 uses of those terms. Now, let's, let's just put Hosea in uh, the Cliff's Notes versions. Imagine you have married someone. You have committed your life to them. You have been completely faithful. Your love has been unfailing. Then you find out they've cheated on you. But you patiently work through it, and miraculously, your marriage is restored over a period of months or a couple of years. Then a few years down the road, this person cheats on you again, and you find that not only have they done it again, but they have been doing it all along. They are a serial adulterer or adulteress. How long would you allow yourself to be treated this way? Would you not exercise appropriate boundaries that say in so many words, I cannot allow you to continue to treat me this way? And would you be unjust and unloving in setting such boundaries? This is the kind of word picture that Hosea is trying to present to us. And it won't be the only time a prophet compares the unfaithfulness of God's people to adultery. He also uses a word picture of beloved children who have turned against their parents, a a heartbreaking circumstance that can crush any parent's soul. We often see God from a finite human perspective, you see, and we wonder what his problem is and why he's so hard on his people. So maybe, just maybe, a prophet like Hosea can help us better understand the heart of our God. In spite of all God's people had done to God, though, I hope you noticed with me that the appeals throughout for them to return to him, to him who is ready to forgive and restore, are numerous. That is, in fact, how the book ends, and that is the heart of the Old Testament God, one who is constantly spurned, forgotten, and ignored, yet one who keeps coming back with a heart that seeks restoration more than condemnation. 
In 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah can serve as a reminder to us of the value of finishing well, which he did not. Uzziah had so much going for him, but then his pride got the best of him, and so his once great reign ended in pain and disgrace. Jotham, his son, however, started and finished well. Maybe he learned from his father's bad example, and thus it says in 27.6, did not waver in obeying the Lord his God. This is just another reminder to us, isn't it, that our walk with God, as Eugene Peterson has put it, is a long obedience in the same direction. Should the Lord be gracious, most of us will live into our 70s and 80s, maybe even beyond that, and and there are few things more beautiful and encouraging than watching those saints, those older saints, seven decades, eight decades, nine decades old, watching them stay on the Lord's path until they leave this world. I hope and pray that you know someone who has walked with God in that path of long obedience and that you have the opportunity to learn from them. They can provide us all with wisdom and counsel on how we too can finish well. Please don't ever discount the gift of faithful, elderly believers. And and again, reading the Kings reminds us of the value of this because there are many bad ones and some good ones, but many of the good ones don't finish well. Last week in the Psalms, we read a psalm in response to betrayal. Psalm 58 is similar, showing us how to pray in the face of injustice and oppression. In America today, we see a multitude of complaints about injustice. The question the church might want to ask is, how are we fervently praying about such things, especially when it seems that there's nothing else we can do? As you see injustice around you and in your own surroundings, do you have a biblical pattern for prayer that can accompany any action that you take? Psalm 58 is a good guide to that. Psalm 61 guides us on how to pray when we are overwhelmed. Here David expresses spiritual and maybe emotional exhaustion when he says, when my heart is overwhelmed or when my heart is without strength. And in his request after that, he does not say, help me to be strong. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This mighty king here resembles a vulnerable child when it comes to his relationship with God. David knew his own limits. He knew that there were forces on this earth that were much larger than he. He also knew, though, that his Father in heaven was infinitely higher, more powerful, and definitely in charge. When he was overwhelmed, in other words, David looked up. He looked toward a rock and a tower. He did not look within. He looked up and out. Speaking of which, you might have noticed already how much the uh, literary device of metaphor is used in the Psalms. Metaphors and similes help us to not only express rightly to God, but especially to see the invisible God as He is, high and mighty, majestic, strong, caring, watchful. We see metaphors like rock and refuge and fortress and tower. You might go back to this psalm sometime this week and mark all the metaphors, even the implied ones, just in verses 1 through 4 and see how many you come up with. And remember, a metaphor is when, uh, just for you people that aren't into grammar like I am because I'm kind of a nerd that way, but a metaphor is when we say something is something. A simile is when we say something is like something else. So metaphor, God is a rock. God is a tower. God is a fortress. Is he literally those things? No. But what he is like, that's the, the metaphors expressing that. Okay, on to other things other than grammar lessons. 
I wonder if Matthew 16 verses 13 through 20 marks a turning point in Matthew's gospel, where there seems to be a pivot toward the ultimate reason Jesus came, to die and rise again. This paragraph, of course, includes Peter's notable declaration, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then in chapters 16 through 20, we see four prophecies from Jesus declaring what is about to happen to him at the hands of those who oppose him, or in terms we use here in Oklahoma, what's fixing to happen to him, what's about to happen to him. We see this in 1621, 1712, 1722, and 20 verse 18. You see, up to this point, I don't think there have been any direct references to the crucifixion and resurrection like there are here. In a short period of time, then, these predictions come in rapid-fire sequence, and we see that Jesus' hour is approaching. One theme I seem to hear more and more often in the American church is this idea, and people don't express it exactly this way, but I see this mindset, and it's this. Above all things, I think Jesus just wants me to be happy. I hear this mindset most often when professing Christians are kind of living on their own terms without much regard for the holy calling God has called them to. Of course, there is some truth to that statement, but I fear the term happy is a reference to someone just kind of living like they want to live, being their own authority, even enjoying sin and tapping into grace simply to excuse their sin rather than tapping into God's grace to enjoy Him. Maybe that's why Jesus, when speaking of following him, lays out the prerequisites in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Self-denial, taking up one's cross, losing one's own life to gain a better life. This certainly doesn't sound like the kind of happy I hear some people talking about, but, but Jesus is not one to tell us that our own ways and our own perspectives are what gives life. Instead, he turns things right side up and reminds us that the secret of having real life is to deny the life you have now and put things into his hands. But here's a little note. In his kindness there, though, Jesus doesn't demand some kind of blind, miserable allegiance, but he promises us that a reward is coming, one that cannot be taken away. It's a form of delayed gratification, not absent gratification. Denying ourselves and following the one who knows and loves us even more than we know and love ourselves will be worth it in the end. The trade-off will be a decision we will look back on and say, this was the right choice and this was the best choice, and now I am supremely happy. Sometimes I ask myself this question, can I trust Jesus with that? Can I trust that true happiness, contentment, and eternal reward comes from present self-denial? It's not the easiest thing to have faith in sometimes. One thing I noticed several years ago is that Jesus only uses the term church only two times in the Gospels, once in Matthew 16 or maybe twice in Matthew 16 and once in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is where Jesus uses the term in the context of people being offended and and times where we need to confront someone else, especially in the life of the church. Many years ago, when I pastored a small church, I went over this passage as part of our membership class and said, half the times Jesus uses the term church, he's talking about conflict. (laughs) I was speaking tongue-in-cheek then, but I was trying to communicate clearly that even among God's people, there will be times of conflict and times when we need to talk about it. I certainly didn't want anyone to be surprised that this is one certainty of living in a world marred by sin, even in the comfort of a good and healthy church. 
Now, we know that many people have been hurt in the church in some very serious ways, and everyone who's ever been part of a local church for any decent length of time has faced hurt or sometimes conflict. Sometimes this will lead to disillusionment with the church, and there are certainly times when there have been deep, deep wounds. Conflict and personal offenses, though, should be expected this side of glory. And I think that's why Jesus gives us some guidelines for working through such things and why one out of two times when he mentions the church, that's what he talks about. With that in mind, I hope if you haven't already done so, you pay attention to the process Jesus describes in this short paragraph. It starts with a private, personal conversation, which then, if necessary, moves out to something more public with the intent of not only handling sin early on, but also ensuring that the accusations are indeed valid. In short, Jesus loves us by not hiding reality from us and by coaching us on ways to handle hard situations that will threaten love and unity if they're not dealt with in the Jesus kind of way. Finally, one quick observation in the final verses we read this week, Matthew 20, verses 32 through 34. In that scene, Jesus asks blind men begging for mercy what seems to be a question with an obvious answer. What do you want me to do for you? Their request, Lord, open our eyes. Then Matthew tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion and touched their eyes. And then immediately it says they could see and they followed him. I'm not sure if Matthew or the Holy Spirit intended this, but when I read this true story, I couldn't help but thinking of how it is a concise picture of the gospel and its effects. We, like blind men, cry out for salvation. Jesus, moved by compassion, opens our spiritual eyes so that now we can see. So then we follow him. I'd like to close with a prayer of thanksgiving based on that, but first our readings for next week, which are... 2 Kings 15 and 16. Isaiah, we will start the book of Isaiah next week. Long book. We'll talk about that more in the introduction next week. Isaiah 1 through 6, Micah 1 through 7, Psalms 9 and 10, and Matthew 21 through 25. But let me close this week just praying in light of that last story we talked about, the blind men who came to faith. Lord Jesus, thank you for your compassionate heart one that came to seek and save lost and helpless sinners like we are. Thank you for opening our eyes to see the beauty of the truth and especially the beauty of you yourself. You and only you are the one always worth following. May we follow you all of our days until that day when you take us to be with you for eternity and say to us what we've longed to hear, well done. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. Amen.